A bishop then must be blameless, the husband of one wife, vigilant, sober, of good behavior, given to hospitality, apt to teach, not given to wine, no striker, not greedy of filthy lucre, but patient, not a brawler, not covetous, one that ruleth well his own house, having his children in subjection with all gravity. For if a man know not how to rule his own house, how shall he take care of the church of God? Not a novice, lest being lifted up with pride, he fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must have a good report of them which are without, lest he fall into, the, into reproach and the snare of the devil. And may God add his blessing to the reading of his word. Let's make our prayer. Well, for the fifth time, we're on the subject of people, and people in general, and specifically, we have a specific group of people we'll talk about here in just a few moments, but we preached a message at the beginning of the year entitled, Young Men, from 1 Timothy chapter 1. Uh, we, entitled, we preached a message a couple of weeks ago, a few weeks ago now, entitled, Lost Men. I particularly enjoyed preaching that message. It was a subject I enjoyed preaching on, and this is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am chief. That's 1 Timothy 1.15. Then we preached a message on babies, and I, I personally enjoyed that message. I was fired up for that Sanctity of Life Sunday. And then, of course, last week I had a little hard time. I preached by constraint, as it's called, to use some biblical language. I preached on a subject that uh, was hard for me to preach on. That was the subject of leaders, or i.e. politicians, of course. That was last Sunday's message. Now this, this Sunday, I suppose, out of all the messages, this could be the hardest message for me to personally preach because it seems self-serving, I suppose, also self-indicting. But I'm going to preach in the third person plural this morning, if I can do that, and talk about they or them. I want to talk about the people group of pastors this morning. And pastors, they are certainly a people group, as we read about in 1 Timothy 2, that we should pray for all men, and pastors are included in that mix. And um, pastors are people, after all. Pastors, in case this is, might be a revelation to you, have problems. The older we get, the more problems we have, uh, by the way. But uh, pastors have problems like you have problems. Uh, pastors have pressures. Now, I don't have any pressures, but other pastors have pressures, of course, but... Uh, pastors have sometimes persecution. Sometimes pastors are given to pessimism. Pastors have plight. And uh, pastors, oh, there it is. I couldn't read my own notes here. Pastors have peculiarities. And uh, we all have peculiarities or things that are germane to us, it seems like, and, uh, and we're kind of known by so pastors are a people group. Notice what it says in verse number one of 1 Timothy 3. This is a true saying. If any man. Now let me just, it's not part of my outline here, but I just want to start, and I'm not trying to be fresh or facetious, but notice it says, if any man. Ladies, I'm not trying to hurt you, but pastors are to be men. I know we have ladies that are pastors. I know there, I would even go a step further and say that there are some godly ladies that that uh, have chose to be pastors, I think they're wrong. I think it's unscriptural. I know their heart is, their heart is well-meaning, but I believe they're deceived. The Bible says, if any man, uh, this is true saying, if any man desired the office of a bishop, and we can easily prove that pastors would be men from the, from the language in the New Testament, especially the Greek language, 
for that matter, the Hebrew language in the Old Testament. And we'll touch on that as I give you this, this morning. The First of all, we've got a D outline going this morning, but I want to give you the descriptions of a pastor. What are the names for pastors found in the Bible, especially in the New Testament? Well, the first name that, we've, that we want to talk about for just a moment is the word elder, or it's the Greek word presbyteros. And the word elder means an overseer or president, presbyteros, president of the assembly. The elders, 1 Timothy, 1 Peter 5, 1 and 2 says, the elders which are among you I exhort, who am an elder, who am also an elder, Peter said, and witness of the sufferings of Christ and also a partaker of the glory that shall be revealed. Feed the flock of God which is among you, taking the oversight thereof not by constraint, but willingly, not by filthy lucre, but of a ready mind. When President Trump was sworn into office, he rose, raised his right hand and he swore to protect and defend the Constitution of the United States and to serve the people. He's the president of the assembly. His job is not, uh, it's not enough to be a Donald Trump agenda, it's to be an America first agenda, it's to be a people agenda. Here we see this elder, this word is the word presbyteros, you that have had the Romance languages especially, whether it be Spanish or Latin or rather uh, uh, French or, or Italian, you know about the different case endings in regards to, uh, and you might recognize that that word presbyteros ends with OS, Omicron Sigma in the Greek language, but we know it is, that's a masculine ending. The word elder is always in presbyteros. It's not presbytera. It's not, it's not, can not, not be, or in Latin to use I. It's not plural, it's not feminine, it's masculine. And the president, he's to be the president of the assembly. So we have this first word, this word elder. Then the second word, the most common word for pastor that describes pastor is the word pastor itself. It's the Greek word poimen, it's the word for shepherd. In fact, the word, it's translated more shepherd than it's translated pastor. And the, the Hebrew equivalent in the Old Testament is translated more often as shepherd, but a number of times pastor, they're interchangeable. The Bible says in Ephesians 4, verse 11, that God gave gifted men to the church. He gave some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and teachers, the Bible says. And uh, so we have these pastors. Jeremiah 15 and verse number, or Jeremiah 3, rather, verse 15 says, And I will give you pastors according to mine heart, which shall feed you with knowledge and understanding. You see, Jesus said in John chapter 10, he said, I am the good poimen." I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd giveth his life for the sheep. And the Lord appointed in 1 Peter chapter 5, he's, Jesus Christ is known as the chief shepherd, but he appointed under shepherds with God's own heart to, to, to pastor with a shepherd's mindset, not a cattle driver's mindset, but with a shepherd. We lead sheep, no offense, not, I'm trying to be blunt here, but cattle drivers, they drive. Shepherds, they lead. And there's a difference. And so a pastor is a shepherd. He, hopefully he's a good shepherd. A pastor is an elder. He's a presbyteros. He's an overseer. Thirdly, a pastor is to be a teacher. And that word teacher, we get our word didactic. We don't use it too much. Or uh, didactic teaching we talk about. It comes from the Greek language. It means instruction. He's to, he's to be the master instructor, the chief instructor. In the Greek language, back to Ephesians 4, and, in fact, just turn there, maybe 10 pages in your Bible. I want you to see this here. Maybe 10 pages back in your Bible. Ephesians chapter 4, just look at the verse. I've already alluded to it once. 
And I always qualify when I say this. I thank God that you don't have to know Greek or Hebrew to know the Bible. If you're a child of God, you got the, you got the Bible. you got the English Bible that can teach you the King James Bible, the, author, the authorized version that can teach you God's word through his Holy Spirit. But I want you to notice what that said. Notice what it says in verse number 11, one more time. Ephesians 4. And he gave some apostles. That's the Greek word apostolos. And some prophets and some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers. Notice that we see the word some, some apostles, some prophets, some, pa- some evangelists, some pastors, and it doesn't say and some teachers. And it's a rule of the Greek language. It's, it's, it says this, when there's two nouns, the two nouns being pastors and teachers, when they're together of the same case number and gender, and they're connected with a conjunction, the conjunction is the word and, they have one, I'll lose some of you if you haven't had a foreign language. If they're connected with one definite article, we know it as the letter, the word the, that when it's talking with one article and two, two nouns of the same case number of gender, it's talking about this one and the same thing. So here's, that's why our Bible says, our King James Bible says, and some pastors and, and teachers, pastor teachers, in other words, pastors to be the head instructor of the of the flock of God, and he's preached the truth in verity and, and, and in truth, as the next verse says. The next word, by the way, letter D back on our worksheet, another descriptive term for pastors is the word preacher. Of course, that's in the Greek language the word keruso, and it means a proclaimer of the word. Go back to 1 Timothy now in chapter number 2. Look at verse number 7. Paul said, whereunto I am ordained a preacher, a proclaimer, cry aloud, spare not, lift up thy voice like a trumpet and show my people their sin, Isaiah said. Preach the word, 2 Timothy 4 says. Be instant in season, out of season. Reprove, rebuke, rebuke with all longsuffering in doctrine. The Bible says, whereunto I am ordained a preacher and an apostle, I speak the truth in Christ and lie not, a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and verity or, or, or veracity. Truthfulness. And so a preacher is to be a proclaimer of the word of God. But then we get back to our text now, 1 Timothy chapter 3, and we officially begin our text now, if we could. The fifth descriptive word that we find for a pastor is found in this verse here, verse number 1. This is a true saying, if a man desired the office of a bishop. Now the word elder is the word presbyteros. We get our word presbyteria from, or the presbyterians get their name from. Overseer of the assembly. We have the word poimain, or the word for pastor, which is a shepherd. We have the word for teacher, or we have the word for uh, preacher. But this is the word bishop. It means, it's the Greek word episkopos. If any of you had a Episcopalian background, that's where you got your name from, or that's where the Episcopalians took their name from. The bishop, the episkopos, which means a watcher over the flock. Now in... Certain denominations, I'm teaching you church theology, not Bible theology, church theology for a minute, or church study. In certain denominations, they have a bishopric, and they have prelates, or they have different names for, they have a head bishop, and they're over, they have a hierarchy, they have a pecking order, they have bishops, and then they have lower bishops in the local churches, and they, maybe some of you come from a denominational type of background, you don't understand what I'm talking about. And they, they pick and choose who's going to be over the church. 
or we don't find it in the scriptures. The Bible says that a bishop is to be a watcher of the flock. Hebrews 13, 17 says this, Obey them that have the rule over you or the overseership over you and submit yourselves, for they watch for your souls, as they that must give an account, that they may do it with joy and not with grief, for that is unprofitable unto you. And so a pastor, just for the record, and it's not, we don't find it in the first five descriptive terms per se, but I want you to, I've always viewed the pastor, and I think that I've likened it to a coach. I likened it to a mentor. We all need mentors in our lives. We all need coaches in our lives. I saw, pardon me for one football illustration, can you handle it? I don't know if you can, but here goes anyhow. Bill Belichick, I saw him interviewed before last Sunday's game. Bill Belichick never played pro football. Bill Belichick looks like me. He doesn't look like Tom Brady. And uh, he admitted that he never played pro football. Now he's coaching, you know, the GOAT, as they call him, greatest of all time. He's coaching players. Every one of them can play football better than he can play. Every last one of them. But he's the coach. And his job is to bring out the very best in his players. A pastor, his job, his ministry is to bring out the very best in the, the flock. The, the people of God. And so we see the description. Then we get to verse number one once more again. Notice the second D as we're talking about pastors this morning. Notice his desire. The Bible says this is a true saying. If a man desire the office of a bishop, he desireth, there's two, or two times we find that word, a good work. Notice that the, the position of a pastor is, or pardon me, a pastor is not, the desire is not of position. You know, in the corporate world, in the workday world, there's many people that are ladder climbing, we call it. They're, they're jockeying for a position. They're stepping over people if they have to to get to that status level. Mark 10, 37, James and John, after walking with the Lord for three years, said at the Last Supper, he, they said, Lord, grant when I come to thy kingdom that we may sit on your right hand and on your left hand. They desired to be somebody if you desire to be somebody, you shouldn't be a pastor. You're playing on the people of God. If you desire to be something or someone or have a place of position or prominence. The word desire has the idea of being stretched out. It has the idea of being longing for. Let me give you a verse, Psalm 84, verse 10. The psalm writer said, I'd rather be uh, a day and night die house is better than a thousand uh, a thousand days I'm paraphrasing but then it says this it says I'd rather be a door I'd rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than to dwell in tents of wickedness in other words I'd rather be an usher in God's house than the CEO of Amazon that's what it's saying I'd rather be I'd rather be in God's house as the most lowly of servants than have all the riches in, of this world and all the accolades of this world and all the prominence and all the press of this world the PR of this world and the paparazzi, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. If your desire, I was picking on the one teenage boy that was Ben, ben was here in the early morning service, and I told Ben, if he wants to be a preacher because of position, don't ever be a preacher. Because we're not, the desire is not a position, but a one of service. The desire is one of service. Jesus said, it's the son of man, he's talking about himself, came not to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give his life a ransom for many. I've used the illustration many times, but a wise preacher said to me, 
on our, my graduation eve of college. I'll never forget it. It's, I can hear the words ringing in my ears even now. He said, gentlemen, remember, he was talking to would-be preachers and missionaries who were going around the world. He said, if you desire to be a leader, remember, very few are willing to be led. But if you desire to be a servant, you'll never run out of work. And I remember saying to myself, I don't think I can be a leader, but I can be a servant. And so we see in a bishop, he desires a good work. He longs for that good work of servantship, to be a servant leader, an overseer, as one that will give an account, as a coach, as a mentor. But then we get to the middle part of verse number two, and notice his distinctives, the pastor's distinctives. A bishop then must be blameless. Notice the main requirement. He must be blameless. The main requirement. Now, it would be foolish for anyone to think, and I think this audience is, and I'm not trying to butter you up, I think you're more educated than this. The word does not mean sinless. If the word meant sinless, we're all, we're all in trouble. There's no pastors. We could ever have a pastor amongst us. Now, I just, just I, want, I, don't want, I don't feel like going down a long, long time down this road, but just to touch on it. I don't know if you've seen the events that have been happening in Virginia, the state of Virginia, in the last week and a half. And with the governor and with the attorney general and the assistant, uh, the, the head of the state house, and then the fourth in command, uh, of the state, and they've, they've found dirt on all, all three of them, and then they're casting dispersion on the fourth. And you know, if you want to find dirt, you can find dirt with anybody and anything, anyone. And the fact of the matter is, uh, I, I think there's some reasons why some people should step down, but if you want to find, uh, Christianity is all about forgiveness, Christianity is all about reconciliation. Uh, I'm glad that. Your past and my past are not put up on the screen for everybody to see. You think of the worst thing you've ever done. And if we put it on the screen, how many of you would be in jail this morning? No joke. Let's be honest. It got quiet, but I want you to understand. Salvation is, in the Bible, is the book of forgiveness. So this word blameless does not mean sinless. The Bible says... If Lord should or thou shouldst mark iniquities, O Lord, who should stand? It has nothing to do with sinlessness, but it has to do with the word means irreproachable. There's nothing open to censure in, a, in an elder's or a bishop's life. In other words, character is as important as competence. We want competent pastors, no doubt about it, but we want pastors with character. And if you've got to trade between the two or have a strong point between the two, you want character first because character always trumps conf or competence. Competence is a wonderful thing. We're blessed as a church that has both, a pastor with character and a pastor with competence. But then notice the, not only the main requirement, but then notice in the second phrase, I'm in verse 2, notice the marriage requirement. Now I'm just going to interject and say right now, I could this little phrase here, I'm referring to the phrase that says, the husband... Now, by the way, there we go back to reinforce who's a pastor. He's a man. He's the husband. Uh, ladies, I'm not trying to be fresh or misogynistic in any way. A, a lady can't be a husband. A woman can't be a husband. The husband of one wife. And so we see that there's a, there's a, there's a loaded term, that husband of one wife. And uh, I will just simply say, and I'll pull open the doors all the way for you. I, I read a certain commentator almost every week that I study for messages, I read John Phillips. 
John Phillips is my go-to commentator guy that I go to. He just died by almost 100 years of age. He died a couple years ago in, in North Carolina. Brother Phillips says this, that he believes that the, that, uh, the, the, the commentators mean that in this context that polygamy would be, and he says, this way, he says it this way, that would be the most logical view or interpretation of this verse. That and it's hard for us monogamous people, these people that you know believe in one man for one woman and don't understand a polygamy type environment. But the world has been—we've had polygamy since the Old Testament times, all the way through. Even to this day, we have groups and countries around the world where polygamy is regular practice. And I really believe, and I came to this conclusion. I changed my belief system. Several years ago, I believe this verse is teaching that a pastor should only have one wife in the context at a time. Now, that doesn't mean you say, and I know some of you are getting nervous right now and on purpose, because I always felt and meant that, that a pastor should never be divorced, and because the rest of the text, and I will get to that in a minute here. And it could mean that, but I think in the context, I think this phrase means, if you study it out and you're unbiased, that it means no, no, they should be a, as Weist says, now when I say the name Weist, just trust me on this one or ask another pastor. When you say the name Weist in theological circles, that's like, to preachers, that's like saying Einstein to a scientist. Weist is considered one of the greatest theologians of the 19th century that ever lived. In his, in his uh, theological books, he says the word means a one wife sort of husband or a one woman sort of man. Now, whilst I'm trying to say, and I know there are divorced pastors, I know there are pastors that have been remarried. Some would say they're disqualified. I will say this, you have a hard time pastoring in America and a lot of other places if you've been divorced and disqualified. And maybe, maybe you are disqualified. I'll leave that up to God, but I'm slow to give judgment. I'm just simply telling you what this verse, I believe, says. It gives a marriage requirement that he should be a man given to one woman, and uh, a one-woman type of man. And so we see the marriage requirement, the main requirement. But then notice thirdly the, the, the moral requirement. There's a list of 16 things here, but here's three of them right off uh, in rapid fire. Notice verse 2. The husband of one wife, vigilant, sober, of good behavior. Let's take those three in regards to the moral requirement. The word vigilant it has the idea of caution, self-control, or being watchful, that word vigilant. Peter said in 1 Peter 5, verse 8, be sober, be vigilant, for your, because your adversary the devil as a roaring lion walketh about seeking whom he may devour. Peter wasn't watchful. He wasn't vigilant at a time earlier on in his, uh, the night of his betrayal. Remember he said, Jesus said, tonight you all betray me. And Peter said, not I, Lord. Though I'll betray you, I won't betray you. You know the rest of the story, don't you? And the Lord said, before the cock crows twice, thou shalt deny me thrice. Peter was pumped up with pride. He wasn't vigilant. But later on, he wrote those words by inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Be sober, be vigilant. Be cautious, in other words. And then the next word is the word sober. That's the idea of being sober or serious-minded. One who does not jump to conclusions before hearing all the facts. Again, I, I have to be careful. I'm trying to stay away from personal illustrations. But I have pastored a little while, and I've done a lot of counseling over the years, 
many hundreds of times, quite frankly. And again, being very careful because I know who I'm speaking to, some of you I've counseled with. And, you know, when I hear this story from one person, one party, and I hear their side of the story, I'm, especially in my early years of pastoring, I'm very quick and very, was very, had the bent to believe everything they said in a hook, line, and sinker. And then I hear the other side. And I won't say there's always two sides to the story. That's not, I don't think that's totally accurate. I'll say most of the time there's two sides to the story. And sometimes, I don't like this phrase, but there is some relative truth in it. Sometimes the truth is somewhere in the middle. And I don't like to just blanket things with moral relativism. Don't misunderstand me. But I've learned as pastoring over the years to be cautious in casting judgment or siding one way or another without hearing all the facts, without knowing. And we'll never know all the facts on this side of glory. We're not the judge. We're not the Lord. But sometimes a pastor and sometimes in courts, leaders, or i.e. judges, they make a wrong decision, but they make that decision on all the facts that they have available to them. And sometimes there's some injustices done. And that's the way it is with pastors as well. That's why we need to be sober, level-headed, not, not coming to quick decisions. But then the, word, the next phrase is of good behavior. Now that word's an interesting word, by the way, and again, like many of these words, you know these words in the Greek language, you just don't know you know them. This word good behavior is the word kosmios, and you say, preacher, I don't know that word. Yes, you do. It comes from a root of the word cosmos. Now you know cosmos, we've all heard of cosmopolitan, uh, I'm not just talking about the magazine, by the way, but uh, the word cosmos means world or worldly, and this word Cosmos or cosmos has the idea of trans or being orderly in a very unorderly world or living a disciplined life in a very undisciplined world. It has the idea of being, in other words, being different from the world. It's a good accusation. It's a good statement when people look at a pastor and say, he's, he's different. Something funny about that guy. He's not, He's strange. By the way, that should be said for Christians as well. We're strange. We're strange to this world. And so we're of, to be good behavior. The world thinks it's strange, Peter says, that we do not run the, in excess and unruly uh, way that they run. And so we see the distinctives, the main distinctive to be irreproachable or blameless, the marriage distinctive, a one-woman man, a moral requirement of vigilant, sober, and a good behavior. But then notice, beginning in verse number two, the latter part of the verse now, notice two things about the, his duties. He's supposed to, first of all, have, notice what it says in the latter part of verse number two, given to hospitality. Now the word is, by the way, it's the word, again, you know them both. It's the word philozenos. You've heard of xenophobic, uh, a fear of strangers. Philos, of course, is a word for friendly or for love. A xenophobos is a lover of strangers. And God says that we're to be, to, to be a lover of, uh, of strangers. And the ministry, you never know who, any given service, who walks in our door throughout the week. Many different, and let me just be careful how I say this, but many strange people walk in our doors over the course of a week. And... Uh, 
The Bible says that he's to be given, the pastor is to be given to hospitality. There's a social gift. If you don't love people, don't ever go into the ministry. Good men are lovers of men. They're sober, they're just. Titus 1.8 says this way, be a lover, of, a lover of hospitality, a lover of good men. Sober, just, holy, temperate. So we see the social gift given to hospitality. And then it says apt to teach. There's the spiritual gift. Uh, apt to teach. The word translated apt to teach is, again, the word comes from the Greek word dikeo, or de, uh, uh, and it means to be skilled in teaching. And, you know, a lot of people don't like to be taught, but we need to be taught the Word of God. This is a very teachy type message, by the way. We're dissecting the Word of God. And uh, it's, it can be tedious at times, but it ought to be refreshing as well. He should be apt to teach. Then we get to the verse number three, and notice his denials. We see the negative word to begin with, verse number three, not given to wine. Now, we're going to touch on the deacons in two weeks from now, so deacons, cheer up, your day's coming. <laughs> but uh, two Sundays from now. But uh, the Bible says, for the deacons, not given much wine. Here it says, not given to wine. The Bible says that a pastor should deny himself certain things, not addicted to wine. Proverbs 23, verse 31, look not upon the wine when it is red. Back in the day, many years ago, he used to be called a teetotaler. Somebody that denied uh, all alcoholic beverage. We've never had a church covenant in our church, and maybe we should. Maybe it's to our shame. Maybe it's to this pastor's shame. But there are churches that have covenants that I will abstain from all alcoholic beverages. I think that's good. I was waiting for an amen. Thank you for that one amen, Brother Ray. I've seen... You say, preacher, can you prove that you should never touch alcohol? Some people think you can, and maybe you can, and maybe if you believe you can, from Proverbs 23, 32, I will never argue with you. The Bible says uh, that at the last, it bites like a serpent and sings like an adder. Wine's brought down more than many a strong man, brought down millions. It's a plague on our country. By the way, let me just interject. I just want to say this, just for the record. We're going to legalize marijuana in our country, and some people say that's okay. We're going to do it in Connecticut. And the argument is, well, it's not any different than, than alcohol, and alcohol destroys more people's lives than marijuana. I would uh, maybe contest that. I don't know if it's true or not. But one wrong doesn't justify another. And the fact of the matter is, I think, there are, I think it's very dangerous, to say the least. And I think that's the understatement of the day, probably. Some things some pastors should stay away from. Don't ever touch it. And so... We're not to be given to wine. Pastors are not to be given to wine. Then they're not to be given to wrath. Look at what it says. Verse number three again. Not given to wine, no striker. Not a brawler. Not contentious. The Bible says, And the servant of the Lord must not strive, but be gentle unto all men, apt to teach, in meekness, instructing those that oppose themselves, if peradventure, we will give, uh, he will give them repentance unto the acknowledging of the truth. I'll be very elusive, and it's a negative illustration, so on purpose I'll never tell you who I'm talking about, and you've probably never met him anyhow. Maybe your brother Ray has, come to think of it, but that'd be about the only possibility. But I'm thinking a certain preacher, I was in his presence, happened to be a very large man, a very big man, well over six foot by several inches, 
And it's one thing to be a big man and be a big man. It's another thing to be a big man and try to show everybody that you're a big man. And he came across that way to me in a very strong way. And I think to me and to other people when he preached, he that everybody know who the boss was. Last time I checked, I know who the boss is. I already know who the boss is. I don't have to have some six foot seven man tell me who the boss is and imply that he might be the boss. That didn't go sit well with me, I'll be honest with you. And don't ask me afterwards who the pastor was, but he's got a fairly big name in America. That's all, all I'll say about it. I was not impressed because we don't bully our way. We're not a, we're not a brawler. We're not contentious. We're not uh, given to strife. Pastors are not to be that way. So the Bible says in these denials, he's not to be given to wine. He's not to be given to wrath. But thirdly, he's not to be addicted to wealth. Look what it says in verse number uh, 3. Not covetous. I wanted to turn to 1 Timothy 6, verses 7 to 9, and it's just two pages in your Bible probably. But we'll, uh, oh, I hear you turning. Go ahead and turn there real quickly. We'll just glance at it. We'll look at it in another message several weeks from now, Lord willing. But the Bible says, verse number 9, but they that will be rich, or those not that are rich, but those that will be or desire to be rich, fall into temptation and to a snare into many foolish and hurtful lust. I told young Ben, Ben, Batchelder today, if, uh, if you uh, want to be rich, don't go into the ministry. You're not going to be rich. You're not going to be filthy rich. And yet all of us, and I think, I think this can be said for me, and I think this can be said for many of you, we know we are rich anyhow. We really are rich. And we're rich in Christ. We're rich spiritually, but we're also rich materially and financially as well. God's been so good to us and uh, been so good to me, and I, I realize that. But not given to riches nor wealth. And so, not given to wine, not, not to choleric, not given to wrath, not, not contentious, not given to wealth, not covetous. But then we get to verses 4 and 5, and back to 1 Timothy chapter 3. And I'm trying to hurry, I'm trying to get done a little early today because of our events of this afternoon, obviously. But verse number 4, it says, And one that ruleth well his own house having his children in, children in subjection with all gravity. Notice his descendants, or his family, in other words, his descendants. The Bible says that the children should be, uh, should be in subjection with all gravity. There was a word gravity again. We see that uh, in Titus as well about a pastor. That we need to be grave. Children need to be in gravity. It means not deviant, but dignified. Uh, once again, this is not teaching that a pastor's family ought to be perfect. There is no perfect family. Not that they should be sinless. There is no sinless family. But a family that's striving to do good. And we go to verse number five, and we'll come back to four in just a moment. But notice, his descendants are not to be deviant, but dignified. They're not to be derelict, but devoted. Verse five says it this way. For if a man know not how to rule or oversee his own house, how shall he take care of the church of God? Now, the implication, there's several implications. I'll just run this fast. There are some people that feel that a man shouldn't pastor if he doesn't have children to begin with. Children are a great education in and of themselves. That's admittedly true. But nowhere in the Bible does it say, we don't know whether Paul ever was married, let alone had children. Many of the disciples, we never read about them having children. Maybe they did, maybe they didn't. But my point is, God's used many, a many, a great man that's been a single man that's never had children to begin with and never had a family to begin with. This is not a disqualifier if you don't have children. 
You're not disqualified if you only have one or if you have ten. But it's a great learning curve if you do have, and it's a great training ground for helping rule in the house of God. And so uh, I, I would just like to submit, and on Monday i just give a personal illustration. I was with 17 pastors on Monday at a pastor's fellowship in Massachusetts. And I, I, I'm comrades or buddies with some of these pastors and just acquaintances with others. But I know for a fact, and I have probably don't have fingers or toes alone, a number of pastor friends and acquaintances I've had that have had problems with their family. We have, I'm thinking of a certain pastor who will, of course, be unnamed, but uh, he has four children and none of them are walking with the Lord now. His heart is broken about it. His wife's heart is broken about it. Some would say, well, he's obviously disqualified. And it's easy to say, and it's easy to throw stones. Isn't it easy to do that, by the way? It really is. And uh, the longer you live, the, the, you, one by one, starting from the oldest, Jesus said in John chapter 8, the Bible says they drop their stones. So I'm talking about the woman, Samaritan woman. You know the story, most of you. Or the woman that caught in adultery. And starting from the oldest to the youngest, they all went away. Because they all realize, but by the grace of God go I, and maybe I'm just as guilty. Pray for pastors' families, is what I'm trying to say. Pray for their grandchildren. Pray for their children. That's very important that we do that. Then we get to verses 6 and 7. And notice what it says, the last two verses of our text. Notice the seventh D on our worksheet here. Notice his development. Verse 6, it says these words, Not a novice, lest being lifted up with pride... He fall into the condemnation of the devil. Now, just for some of you old timers, you know, a handful of half a dozen, a dozen people in this room who know who I'm talking about. Most of you don't. But when I went to college, I'll give an illustration. One of my roommates, my freshman year, his daddy was responsible for bringing in on a regular Sunday, on a low Sunday, his daddy brought in 10,000 people in the church every Sunday. He was assistant pastor of what was at that time the largest church in America. And he, this, this pastor, his son, was my roommate. And so we were all about this super church, a church that had regular attendance of twenty and 30,000 people on any given Sunday morning. The Sunday, last time I was there on a Sunday morning, they had 33,000 people in church, one auditorium. And uh, we were wowed. And all those young, young boys in Bible college, I remember there was a certain fellow, his name was Russ, you don't know what I'm talking about, so I'll use Russ in his name. But I got in a conversation with Russ one night, and I, he was 19 or 20 at the time. I was 19 or 20 at the time. I said, well, what do you want to be when you uh, get out into the ministry? He says, well, I'm afraid to tell you. He says, you wouldn't believe me if I told you. I said, no, that just spurred me. No, tell me, what do you want to do? He said, well, I'm going to be a pastor, of course. I says, uh, and, and he says, I'm going to pastor a large church. I said, really? How long a church are you going to pastor? He says, 50,000 people. I said, kind of took me back. In fact, it took me back a lot. And uh, I thought he was kidding with me. I, I think I laughed. He says, no, I really want to be a pastor of 50,000 people. I was like, I was just blown away. I couldn't even think about being a pastor of five people, let alone 50,000 people. And here's this guy, and, and he said, well, if so-and-so can do it. And he mentioned this great pastor that was running 20 or 30,000 in his church, and, and his son was, was my roommate, whose dad also said those words, that I'm going to go pastor the largest church in America. And by the way, he did pastor a very large church in America. That's true, but that's another story. But this would-be young novice, 20-year-old kid said, I want to be this superstar pastor. 
And uh, we see in verse number six, the Bible says, don't hire a rookie. Don't, not a novice. Lest being lifted up with pride, he fall into the condemnation of the devil. And so in his development, don't hire a young buck, a young, young uh, uh, rookie that with this build up of pride, let him walk a humble walk for a while before he gets elevated. Because verse number seven says this, moreover he must have a good report of them which are without, outside the church, lest he fall into the reproach and the snare of the devil. And so in his development, the Bible says, verse six, don't, don't watch out for rookies, watch out for novices, but then watch out for rowdies. I'm using some slang, admittedly, some riotous or some rebels or some unruly or some rowdy, rowdy character. That's not who God calls to be a pastor. Now, let me bring it back full, full circle. I was supposed to be done five minutes ago, but I'm, we're wrapping up here a little early this morning is the plan. Not really. <laughs> but uh, I want to give you three things to do for, for good pastors. Number one, just like leaders we talked about last week, pray for them. Pastor Parmar, I talked to him almost every week of my life and uh, talked to him on Monday or Tuesday this week, early on. I didn't talk to him yesterday, but uh, what endeared me to Pastor Parmar, we call him our intercessory prayer pastor, and he'll be back in, uh, this is another month or so, late April, or late March, rather. And uh, what endeared me to him was his prayer life and how much he prayed for, you know, he prays for you, he prays for me regularly. He puts me to shame in the prayer department for sure. Pray without ceasing, the Bible says. And pray for your pastors. Pray for pastors in generic. Those are the good pastors that are praying or are preaching all over New England and America today. There are some that are getting discouraged. There are some that are getting ready to throw in the proverbial towel. Some that are ready to quit. Pray for them. But then number two, protect them. Uh, I... I I'm wrapping up. The plane's coming down here, but let me give you a personal illustration. Pastor Bennett, I have a very soft spot by heart for Pastor Bennett. He took care of me when I was a teenage kid. Uh, he took care of me when I was a young pastor. Now, pastor Bennett, he has Alzheimer's now. And I think most of you know that. Mrs. Be- Mrs. Bennett has Alzheimer's. They, they start repeating themselves about every three minutes now. He'll never be able to preach from this pulpit again. He'll never be able to drive to Connecticut again. But I think of Pastor Bennett, and I think of Pastor Bennett, I think of kindness, grace, uh, humility, long-suffering. And I wasn't going to say this. I said it in 815 service. I said I wasn't going to say it in 1030, but I'll say it anyhow. If it wasn't so sad, it'd be funny, but it was not funny at all. I remember about 40 years ago now, I was a teenage boy, and a certain, not a lady, a woman, a female, accused Pastor Bennett of impropriety. No, not a one, not a one of us in the church. I remember being a teenager like, Pastor Bennett, no possible way. No possible way would that ever happen. And we knew it. Not for one second did anybody believe it. You say, who was that lady? Well, she spent time in Ohio State Prison for putting a gun to her husband's head and pulling the trigger. She's a murderer. That's who the accuser was. And accused Pastor Bennett. And the uh, Bible says, Receive not an accusation against an elder, except to be by two or three witnesses. Be careful. Protect them. Protect the pastors. Pray for them. And then lastly, promote them. You say, what do you mean by that? You know, many of you don't know this, but our sign on our church 
lower marquee of our sign says Harvest Baptist Church, a going church for a coming Lord. I stole that from the Berean Baptist Church 33 years ago. I stole that phrase. It's been on their sign of the Berean Baptist Church in Rockford, Illinois. It started in 1957. Pastor Swanson, he's 94 years old now. He's pastored that church for 57 years. That was his phrase, um, a going church for a coming Lord. I said, if it's good enough for Pastor Swanson, it's good enough for me. And we, we stole that phrase. But when I, think of, when I think of kindness, I think of my Pastor Ben. And when I think of zeal, I think of Pastor Bob Crichton in my life. When I think of obedience and godliness and holiness, I think of Melvin Swanson in my life. 94 years young, went through two wives, both buried, died with cancer. And he's loved the Lord and served him. And, and uh, he'll always be a great hero in my life. And I thank God for heroes. Pray for other pastors this morning. I know you pray for me, but pray for our other pastors around New England. Pray for our churches. You know, 30 more seconds. Here we go, and I'm going to pray. Uh, Caleb went to a meeting of 16 of New England pastors yesterday, youth pastors, 16 of them met in Hartford. And uh, talk about the New England Baptist Youth Camp. There's 300 kids that go to that thing. They entertained, it's up in New Hampshire, they entertained driving three and a half hours down, all 300 kids from all churches, all from Maine, New Hampshire, Vermont, all the Rhode Island, all the states. They entertained coming to Harvest Baptist Church for the Friday night youth rally. And I said, they did? And I says, says, no, I don't want to come. 300 of them. And fortunately, we got off the radar screen, but they, we, we were, they thought of us because they, they, they looked at our church, they know about our church. They, they saw our building, they know about our building, they know about God, how God's blessed us. And they entertained driving almost 200 miles, 150 miles one way with 300 kids to come and be part of us. God's, well, I say all that in the context of God's blessed our church. We've been very blessed in so many ways. And to God be all the glory. Let us still none of it. Let's bow for prayer. Heavenly Father. We pray for pastors all around New England again today, this morning. We pray, Lord, for those that have touched our lives. Lord, I think of Pastor Parmar especially this morning. I think of Pastor Bennett. Lord, bless him, Pastor Crichton down in Florida, and pray for Pastor Swanson up in cold Wisconsin, or rather Illinois this morning as well. And all the others, Lord, help us to give of our best to the Master. Give us the strength of our youth. We'll thank you for it, Lord. Pray you bless in our moments of invitation. We ask in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's all stand together, and we're going to sing 100, or rather...